0: before my sermon I want to make a statement about something that's on our hearts and minds or many of our hearts and minds Uh, this weekend in Charlottesville Virginia there was a white supremacist rally and it was with great sadness that we know that a man used his automobile as a terrorist weapon and drove it into a crowd of people to date one person I've heard is dead and 19 are injured Uh, I've only watched the news yesterday for 10 minutes, but what I've seen, everybody, of course, is condemning this as an act of terrorism, and all are pleading for an acceptance of one another, for rational dialogue, for underscoring the greatness of the American experience and the American experiment. My my question is, why has everyone uh, spoken out against this, from the president to the Speaker of the House to the minority? leader of the the Congress to various senators, I've read why. Why why are we told to embrace those who are different than us? Why is white supremacy wrong? Or why is the ethnic cleansing of Slobodan Milosevic two decades ago in Serbia, why is that wrong? Why was it wrong for the Serbians to kill hundreds of thousands of, of Bosnians? Why was it wrong? for the regional starvation of the Ukrainians by Joseph Stalin in the 1930s. Why, why is that wrong? If Mao Zedong is right, which I don't think he is, he says authority and power are only in the barrel of a gun. In other words, only the strong survive. Uh, why were the Jim Crow laws of the South horrendous? Then many of us grew up with a faint memory of where there are separate facilities and separate water fountains for blacks and whites. Why was the laws titled miscegenation, which outlawed the marriage between different ethnic groups fundamentally and horrendously wrong? Why was it wrong for the Turks to systematically kill 1.5 million Armenians and Greeks in the first part of the 20th century. Do you realize, church, that the Nazis applauded the United States in the 1930s? I just read a book about that by a professor of law at Princeton University. They applauded the U.S. and said that you have a good start with your laws against black Americans but you must go further. And why were the Nazis simultaneously horrified that in this country we said that Jews were part of the, quote, white race? We scandalized the Nazis. Why is that wrong? Well, you, if you listen to the commentators, they say, well, it violates common decency. And they're right. It does. They say that it, there's, there's, there are common truths that have been held by people for centuries and centuries, and, and the good guys hold to these truths. What they don't realize is they're arguing for what we would say theologically is the doctrine of common grace that call remain in the image of God. We understand that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, or also called natural theology. But more about that some other time. But this common decency can be silenced by the thundering echoes of jackboots as thousands of people marched through the streets. Look at Nazi Germany. This common decency can be silenced by the withering looks of the disapproval from the majority of the people. You see, we are easily manipulated and cowed. So common decency is a noble argument, but I want to say very strongly this morning as a follower of Jesus Christ that it is not the ultimate argument. The ultimate argument of why this is wrong comes from our confessional statement called the Baptist Faith, a message that says in the spirit of Jesus Christ, Christians are obligated to oppose every form of Racism. We're talking about a Christian world and life view, and a Christian world and life view should be, uh, it's it's the way you look at the world. It's very easy. world and life view, the way you look at the world, and a a world and life view should be easily stated, and on on this level should be easily accessed by everyone, so you don't give yourself to academic jargon or epistemological niceties. You just are able to state it plainly. So let me give you a, a statement about men and women that is a biblical world and life view. And I'm going to argue in just two minutes, and I'm going to go to the sermon, I argue that this is, gives you a place to stand with valor and courage and dignity and to be planted. Now, here it goes. Uh, three different states. God made us male and female before sin entered the, entered the human race. And he said about our maleness and our femaleness in the Garden of Eden, it is very, very good so so gender is God's idea, maleness and femaleness is God's idea. Now, if you embrace that and understand that, you've just answered about 100 questions that our culture is talking about today. The second thing we say is that, is that mankind is the crowning work of God's creation. That God looked at the very first man and woman, and he said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and rule over it. And, and so there is... A, There's a a benevolent stewardship that we exercise because we are the crowning work of God's creation. The third thing is this, is that every man, woman, and boy, and girl are made in the image of God. You Think about that. Every every person you meet today is made in the image of God. They can express beauty. They can communicate. They can do deeds of kindness. Uh, they're, They're made in the image of God. Therefore... Every man, woman, and boy, and girl is worthy of respect and Christian love. Everybody. And so we are people who are called to be lovers of other folks. So, so this is, to me, this is much more glorious than the common decency argument. It's grounded in the created order. It's grounded in the mind of the living God. And so just two quick applications. So this week, as you are talking to your neighbors or at a break in your office or with you and you're on your college campuses, and someone talks about the horror of this white supremacist uh, reality and, and the wrong-headed thinking of it, or, or the wrongness of the jihad thinking, or the wrongness of the, the black nation Islam thinking of Louis Farrakhan. As people would think about, talk about that, you say, you know, I, I believe the wrong because I believe that every man and woman, despite their latitudinal location or despite their ethnicity or their economic standing, every man and woman, boy and girl, is made in the image of God. And therefore, every man and woman and boy and girl is worthy of respect and, and Christian love. So say that. And say it with joy because it gives you a place to stand. And, and also, be, just be kind to people. Speak to people all around you with dignity and love and grace. And, uh, I, I've done this for years as I check out of the grocery store. I know pretty soon we're going to have self checkout and the chip and all this kind of stuff, but for years and years there have been people called cashiers that check you out in the stores. Yeah, I'm going to have to define that in about 10 years. And they're wearing these name bags. And I always make a habit to call them by name. Thank you. Lauren. And she looks up at me like, do I know you? You know, you're a friend of my parents or my grandparents. And uh, my great-grandparents, you know. And, and I realized that when she responds that way, or a, a gentleman responds when I call his name, is that rarely do people refer to them by their name, even though they've got name tag here. Just be kind to people. Be kind to people. Tip people at the restaurant. Especially if you pray before your meal. I've talked to people that work in restaurants and said, Boy, I hate to see people pray before their meal because it's going to be a lousy tip. I thought, Man, that's bad. They've had me as a customer. Well, let's keep on going. So we're, we're discussing this issue of uh, spiritual warfare, and I've said before the spiritual warfare is the unrelenting, ongoing, everyday present, every moment present battle against a mortally wounded foe, the devil and his henchmen. and this mortally wounded foe, he's mortally wounded because of the cross. He's, he's defeated at the cross, but he still has this, this action going on, civil warfare. Um, this mortally wounded foe who wants to drink us down and consume us. And so as we, this last section, I want to look at spiritual warfare and the life of a king in the Old Testament, a king named Asa out of the book of 2 Chronicles. But in Romans chapter 15, the apostle Paul talks about part of the glory of the Old Testament and why the Old Testament can be very instructive. And he says this in verse 4 of Romans 15. He says, He uh, says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So as we study King Asa this morning, it is through the instruction of the Scriptures we might have endurance and we might have hope. So we're going to look at King Asa. Very quickly, King Asa's background, he is the great, great grandson of King David. All right? He reigns for 41 years in Judah. 41 years. And the, if you read the scriptures here, we're going to, the first 35 years are glorious and wonderful and full of energy and hope and obedience. And the last six years, he crashes. He crashes. He crashes. So I'm going to look at reasons Asa was a very good king and reasons that Asa crashed. So first of all, reasons that Asa was a very good king. Number one, he understood the majesty, power, and greatness of the living God. And because of that, he gave himself as a earlier man, younger man, to continuous character reformation now what's interesting his daddy's name was Abiah Abiah only had a three-year reign we're not sure why it was only three years but Abiah was king and here's his older son Asa observing his father and, and, and right, the, the main thing about his father's reign is that is that is that, is that Abiah fought against the northern kingdom now, now real quickly David is king. Solomon is king. Rehoboam becomes king, the son of Solomon, grandson of David. Rehoboam makes some really stupid decisions, and because of that, the, the, the nation of Israel was torn from north and south. You had ten tribes that made of the north, and they became ungodly idol worshipers, and the two tribes of the south basically stayed true to the calling of worship of Jehovah God only. It's not because their northerners and were the bad guys and the southerners were good guys. It just happens to work out that way. Historically in many situations, but that's enough of that. So we have, we, have, we have the north, bad, the south, good. Asa is king of the south, 41 years. His daddy was king for three years. And the main thing that happened during his dad's reign is that, is that the southern kingdom had a battle against the northern kingdom. And there's an, it's just a great passage in Second Chronicles 13. They, they come out and they're about to fight and then king... Abiyah, Asa's dad, gives this speech the the king of the godly southern kingdom he says, verse 8 and now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord God Jehovah in the hand of the sons of David the sons of David God made a promise to David to have one of his descendants on his throne, that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ because you are a great multitude and you have your golden calves that your king, your ungodly king, has made for you. They are your gods. But have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites? Verse 10, but as for us, the Lord is our God. And we have not forsaken him. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are the sons of Aaron, as Moses decreed, and Levites for their service. They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incense of sweet spices. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Behold, God is with us at our head and his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you. O oh, sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. And they fought, and Judah won. And all through this whole time. There's Abion, his son, is right beside him, listening to everything his dad is saying and observing his dad and going, wow. And the Bible says, thus, thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed against them. Because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. Wow. And then Abiyah dies. And Asa comes to the throne. Young men. And this is the first thing Asa does. Chapter 14. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and he broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherim, which were fertility poles that that people would dance around or worship as they longed for harvests and babies. And and he commanded Judah to seek the Lord, uh, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandments. And he took out all of the cities of Judah, the high places and the incense altars dedicated to other gods, and and the kingdom had rest under him. So he, he gave himself to this godly reformation of character. And it says this and, and the land, he says, the, the land is still ours, because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him. The word for sought or seek means to stretch yourself out, to be intent, and to reach for God with all of your might. And Asa, the younger king, says, listen, we're going to do this and we're going to seek after God because when you seek after God, God blesses you. And, And Asa understood this principle that later would be given to him. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him now do I I, I really believe that that God is a seeking God and God walks among his people today and, and God says to us today the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are engaged in worshiping him and they're repenting and they're stretching. See, see. I, I think of this whole thing of seeking and intently going forward and pushing yourself ahead. And I think of what Jesus says in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of, of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. And I say, I say, God, give me understanding in how to do this. Because here's my concern. My concern is that, is that we're like these, I'm not being critical, but like these parents who all have the same bumper sticker on their car. My child is the child of the month at this elementary school. So, so every child is a child of the month. And there, there, there's, you know, the, the, the bar, we put the bar so low, we, we jump over a six-inch bar and say, man, ready for the Olympics. <clears throat> we run a 15-yard or 15-second, 50-yard uh, dash and say, I think I'm ready for the 100 meters. Bring it on. And I think, Lord, make us biblical Christians to understand we're, we're to be people who seek you. See, spiritual warfare is about this fact. There's an adversary that wants to drink us down, and there's a God who wants to bless us, and we run to the Father. Asa was a great king because he understood the power of God, and the character Reformation was part of seeking after God. Number two, Asa understood the verse I just gave you, 2 Chronicles sixteen nine, that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro, to bless those whose hearts are engaged with him, if we had banners, and we marched under banners. One of our banners would be from the New Testament book of Hebrews 11 and verse six. that says this: "And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For everyone who draws near to God must believe two things. Number one, He exists. He's there and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. That's it. You have gotta believe two things. Number one, God is, he exists, he's glorious, he's the king, he's triune, and he rewards those who seek him. Asa got that and he was a great king for 35 years. Number three, Asa was a great king because he humbled himself in the midst of a difficult circumstance. This is what happened, he's been on the throne probably 10 years, 12 years. God's blessed him. There's been peace in the land. He looks up one day, and there on the horizon is an army of one million Ethiopians and Libyans. A million! And and Asa has 580,000 valiant warriors. So he's got a good army. They're they're not, you know, the militia that shows up every three months to spend a weekend together and go home. there are valiant warriors, but there's there's 580,000. And against a million. And Asa goes out, he tries to negotiate, no battle. They say, no, we're we're here to kill you and slit your throats. So Asa goes back and he says, we're gonna have a battle. Now, if you've read Henry V by Shakespeare, which is an incredibly good, great play, that the British round numbered four or five to one against the French, and, and they have dysentery, and there's no way they should win. And King Harry jumps up on the stamp, stump and gives an incredible speech about today is St. Crispin's Day. It's one of my favorite places in all literature. That's not what Asa did. Asa didn't stand up on the stump and say, we are the men of the West. Asa went before the living God. And this is what Asa did in a time of deep distress. This is his prayer. It's beautiful. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help. Between the mighty and the weak, help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have Come against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Let not man prevail against you. Asa was great because in the midst of difficulties, he called upon the Lord. And this is what happened. God gave him an incredible victory. The one-million army was routed, and they fled for their lives, and they left behind boatloads of values and riches and war booty and they put on the wagons and they chased them as far as they could chase them till they gave out and they turned when and they came back into Jerusalem and people were laughing and singing and clapping and they become fantastically wealthy and King Asa they start saying, King Asa you're the warrior king, you are king you're the warrior thank you King Asa, you're the man And King Asa is coming in Jerusalem and he's covered with blood and sweat and grime from the battle. And it's going to be the best night of his life. And as he comes into the gates of the city, God appoints a prophet. Now in those days, they didn't have the Bible. So God would appoint a prophet to speak the word of God to people. So King Asa, the victor, the warrior king is coming into the gates and a prophet of God named Azariah meets him. And this is what Azariah says to this king, flushed with victory, covered with grime and dirt, but victorious. He says this. Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, He will forsake you. And gives a brief overview of history and how people abandoned the Lord. And he says this, but but, but you, O King Asa, take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Now, now if I'm Asa, I'm going, you know, Azariah, I appreciate you. I appreciate the fact you're a prophet of God. I appreciate you have a message from God. Can we not wait a few days? I mean, we just had this great victory. It's time to dance and sing and literally kill several fattened calves. That's not what happens. I, I love the next verse. Here it is. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and he put away the detestable idols and destroyed the high places that were still there. And see, some of the people from the north had come to the south because they saw the hand of God with King Asa, and King Asa called all these people together who had recently become immigrants into their country. They said, listen, you come from a part of the world where they worship multiple idols. We want you to get rid of any idol, any idolatry, because we worship the Lord God Jehovah and Him alone. And, and, and they had this, this, this glorious encounter. It says, in verse 12, that they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with All their heart and with all their soul. Verse 15. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with their whole desire. And he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. See, he was a great king because he responded quickly to God's revelation. I love it. As soon as Asa hurt, as soon as he hurt, he responded. I asked myself, Am I uh, that type of guy? Not always. Hmm. As soon as you read the scriptures, I've got, to, I've got to do this. As soon as. He was also a great king, number five, because he committed everything to the Lord, even his mama. Even his mama. Chapter 15, verse 16. Even Makah. That's his mama's name. Even Makah, his mother, King Asa, removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image of, for Asherah. Listen, he cut down his mama's God, he crushed it, and he burned it. <laughs> he didn't take it down and put it in storage and Mom, maybe sometime later. He cut it down, he crushed it, and he burned it. This was his mama, the queen mother, who sat in the royal court and had incredible Privilege and opportunity and influence. He says, "No, you're a worshiper of of a fertility god. This involves all types of bizarre practices." I love you, Mama, but you're out of here. You're in the back. You're in the back. You're not the queen. You're not the queen mother anymore because you aren't honoring the living God. I had the privilege of, of talking to our PCA faculty or school here. is a great group of people last week, and as I was there, i, I noted a book by a guy named C.S. Lewis, that I think is one of the finest books I've ever read. It's called The Four Loves. And, and Lewis's thesis in, in, part of the, in part of the book is, is, that, is that our love for Christ will heighten every other love we have, that, that Christ is the energizing God of all creation who gives us consistency. And, and, and he, he talks about the statement of Jesus in Luke 14 where he says, if any man comes to me and doesn't hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. And of course, Christ is speaking in hyperbole there, and that, and that he said, Your love for me must be supreme. And that's what Lewis says. I think it's so phenomenal. It's in the worship guide. He says, So we must turn down or disqualify our nearest and dearest when they come between us and our obedience to God. Heaven knows it will seem to them sufficiently like hatred. We must not act on the pity we feel. We must be blind to tears and deaf to pleadings. And some of you have been there. And he says this later in the chapter. It will be too late when the crisis comes to begin telling a wife or a husband or a mother or a friend that your love all along had a secret reservation, quote, it must be under God. And then he talks about, he quotes a, a Puritan poet named Lovelace, and he writes about a man who's going to war, and he looks at his wife, and she's pleading him not to go to war, and he says, I, I could not love you if I did not love honor more. And this is really, the, what he's saying is there's got to be a higher motivation than just natural loves, and he says, for us, of course, the highest revelation is the person and the work and the reality of Jesus. And he says this. They ought to have been warned not to be sure explicitly, but by the implication of a thousand talks, by the principle revealed in a hundred decisions upon small matters. Indeed, a real disagreement on this issue should make itself felt early enough to prevent a marriage or friendship from existing at all if they cause us to not follow Christ. it's, it's, It's a hundred little decisions that we make as we seek To honor the Lord. And Asa, right now, his heart is fully engaged. And if only his story ended here, it would be so glorious. If he'd just kind of, if maybe a tree limb had fallen on his head or he'd died of an assassination by an ungodly group, but that's not what happened. And see, I want us to finish well. Asa did not. And I was thinking about some of these issues. Um, but, uh, about people. And, and we have a tendency to write stories about great literary or motion picture figures when they're doing really well. Let me give you a couple of examples. This guy is a guy named D.H. Lawrence. He was a, a wonderful writer, gifted man. D.H. Lawrence is called the one of the fathers of the modern-day sexual liberation movement. And so he celebrated and He wrote and he lived with courage and dignity based upon his convictions and his presuppositions about sexual liberty, yada, yada, yada. But I've read, been reading a book about D.H. Lawrence and a couple of articles. And what they don't tell you is D.H. Lawrence uh, had scores of people that he abused sexually. There was a woman that he seduced and she left her husband and her three, she abandoned her three children. And they had an on-again, off-again, love-hate relationship for three decades. And she scattered his ashes somewhere in New Mexico after he, years after he died. And, but time after time, there's brokenness and pain. And, and Lawrence's own statement at the end of his life is that there's nothing but void and emptiness and horror. D.H. Lawrence. Or this guy, Oscar Wilde. I have read about Oscar Wilde. This week, World Magazine had an article on Oscar Wilde. A very good article. And Oscar Wilde was, uh, again, uh, a very gifted writer. Uh, uh, some I said, Oscar Wilde never met an undertaking that he could not refuse to complete, that he started a lot of things and didn't complete them. I understand that. Uh, Oscar Wilde was, if you know the story, was uh, very involved in uh, uh, aberrant sexuality in the area of homosexuality. And so this week, there's an article I read about him, and they quoted a, a wonderful apologist named Ravi Zacharias, who was born in India, such a great apologist, speaker for Christ. And this is what Ravi Zacharias said about Oscar Wilde, who died at the age of 46. He says, the more I read Oscar Wilde, the more I was convinced that every time you dabble in that which is, that which makes fun of the sacred, it reshapes your conscience and reshapes your hungers. The more he got into things uh, that he ought never to have been in, the more he desired them, and in his own words, the more he hated and loathed them at the end of his life. So you do not enter into a lifetime of profane living with impunity. It shapes your hungers and traps you. I think there is a psychological and sociological and spiritual effect to it all, close quote. Oscar Wilde died at the age of 46. One of his last dialogues was was with a friend who shared his lifestyle and he said to his friend, have you ever loved any of the men you've been with? And he says, no. And Oscar Wilde says, neither have I. And so I read that, I love to read biography. I think of Proverbs 4 that says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It grows brighter and brighter until full day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. I think that's an incredibly accurate statement about life. And I want to finish well to the glory of God because there's joy there. So let me tell you about my week and I'm going to talk about a couple of families and the surviving family members are here in, in the worship center but this week I had three funerals I've never had three funerals in one week um, but let me say this uh, th- there was a glory to all three funerals and a joy still hard so see the Bible says we grieve but not like those who have no hope so Tuesday, we had a funeral of a wonderful man, Demi Chikaris, his widow's here, and they celebrated 50 years together. And as I was there, you know, the boys loved their dad, and daughters and all loved their dad, and the grandchildren loved their dad, and 83, I think, and lived well. The next day, a funeral of a man who's, Fought cancer with courage and dignity for years. And Steve Newman, he was a member of this church and part of this church for over 23 years. Married almost 20 years. And he and his wife, Sally, wonderful people, adopted Russian, two girls from Russia when they were two. Now they're 18 and 19, I think. And he finished well to the glory of God. And, and then the next day, we had a dear man in church named Bill Hall who died. On I think Tuesday night. It's Tuesday night, and then uh, his wife was told her husband has died, and she's been very sick. And she smiled and went to sleep, and she never woke up. She died two days later. So we had a double funeral on Thursday. She was 90, he was 87. Dear people, loved the Lord and loved people. And you know, somebody said, "How do you handle all that emotion?" Let me tell you, it it's hard. It's hard. But let me tell you something. There's a glory in these funerals. Let me tell you why it's hard. What is hard is to be asked to do a funeral over someone who showed no concern for the things of Christ. And you pray that somehow in the last minutes of their life, they came to say yes to the glorious gospel of Jesus. You pray that, but you have no confidence. And so as far as you're able to determine and observe, they are spending eternity in a place called hell where they're separated from the presence of God forever and ever, and it's a place of torment. Now that causes me to lose sleep. That causes me to grieve. So, so yes, uh, th- this week was hard, but let me tell you, all these people finished well. That's what I want for us. So, very quickly, how, and I'll do this in eight minutes. How and why Asa finished so poorly. So here's Asa, 35 years, boom! I think, woof! And then all of a sudden, He just crashes, and we don't know why. See, we we look at his great-great-granddaddy David, and, you know, David was supposed to be fighting battles, and he decided to stay home, and he goes out on his roof, and he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. He brings her into his house, and they have this immoral relationship, and she gets pregnant, and David says, "Uh uh-oh, I've coveted, I've committed adultery, and he he calls her husband back, his name is Uriah, he says, Uriah, go into his wife, he wouldn't go in because my soldiers are bivouacked in the field, I can't go in and enjoy my wife physically. So David has Uriah killed. Coveting, murder, adultery, lie. He brings Bathsheba into his house and says, I will adopt this poor woman. Ah, she's also pregnant. Well, we'll just, this is, I'm magnanimous King David. He was found out to be a liar and an adulterer and a murderer. And and from that point forward, God's judgment never left his family. If you want to see a dysfunctional group of people, just read the Old Testament. The royals of Judah under David made the royals of England look like poster children for normality. So we know why David blew it. And then David dies, and there's this struggle for the throne, and one son is killed, and one son comes to power. His name is Solomon. And Solomon is a young man, and God comes to him in the dream and says, Solomon, ask me for whatever you will, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon said, Lord... I'm young and stupid. And there are four, five, six million people over here. I'm supposed to rule? Lord, I don't even know where to begin. So I'm going to ask you to give me wisdom. Please give me an understanding heart. 2 Kings 3, verse 9. And God says, Solomon, because you asked for wisdom and not riches and power, I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to give you riches and I'm going to give you power. And Solomon takes off. A few years later, the Bible says, Solomon loved many foreign women, and he brought their idols into Jerusalem and into his life, and he crashes, and he burns. And we believe he writes the book of Ecclesiastes as a bitter, older man, and he says in Ecclesiastes, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. Bitter. Bitter. We don't know what Asa did. The Bible is silent on the issue that trapped Asa. Let me tell you what I think Asa fell. It's just from reading the scriptures here. I think Asa fell because after this encounter we read about with Azariah, there is a 20 to 22-year period where there's peace and prosperity in the land. It's good. And Asa's going through the routines of temple worship, and he's observing feast days and fast days and the temple of booths and the Yom Kippur and the whole deal. But, But slowly, 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 Asa's heart is disengaged. Slowly. And he becomes a man who just is going through the routines and his heart is not there. There's a book called Hosea in the Old Testament, talks about the people of Israel falling into sin. And Hosea 13, verse 6 to me is the thesis statement of the book. And it says, When I when I fed them, they became satisfied. When they became satisfied, they forgot me. That happens, doesn't it? Life is good. Fed, satisfied, forgot. And because of that, Asa didn't finish well. Let me just say this. I say this to myself. Don't presume on tomorrow. Don't presume on tomorrow. I mean, some of us sit back and you say, if you're 25 and, man, you're in the prime and you're, man, you're feeling good, you say, well, according to the life insurance charts, the average age for an American man to die today is 80 and the average age of a woman is 82. I'm 25, I'm a man, so 25, uh, I mean, I've got 55 years. Uh, I can be serious later. You don't know that. You know if your heart's going to be hard. You don't know if something's going to happen catastrophic in your life or, or if you're 60 close to 60. You say, well, the people tell you that if you, if you had 60 and you've never had a bad illness and your family has genetic strong genes, then you'll probably live to be 90. So, hey, man, I've got 30 or 27 more years if it's 90. I, mean, I don't know that. I read recently what happened a couple of weeks ago with, involving these two guys. There was a, they were in Austin, Texas, awaiting a flight out. The man on your uh, right is a linebacker for the Chicago Bears. That's a professional football team in Chicago that used to win football games, Chicago Bears. And he plays the Chicago Bears, and he's getting ready to go to training camp. He's sitting there eating a beef brisket in Austin, Texas, at a great beef brisket eatery in the airport. And the guy on the left is a the guy, the guy, the linebacker's name is Jarrell Freeman. The guy on the, the left is a, a man named Ryan James, or Marcus Ryan, excuse me, Marcus Ryan. And so, you know, Jerrell Freeman's sitting there listening to his music, getting psyched up to go to training camp to play for the Bears. And he looks up, and this guy across from him in the red shirt stands up and starts staggering around his table. And he thought, he thought maybe he's upset, just kind of glanced at him, maybe he's upset his kids aren't where they're supposed to be. And, and, but then he noticed that he was clutching at his throat, and an older woman jumped up and very alertly tried to do the Heimlich and uh, she couldn't do it. And so Jarrell uh, Freeman, the linebacker, NFL jumped up, and he said, I picked him up, he says, I've never done the Heimlich, but my mama is a nurse. And she used to talk about the Heimlich procedure. So I grabbed him, and I, I, put him up and I, I pulled as hard as I could, and I looked at him, and he said, didn't do it. So I put him in, and, said, and this time I really crushed him. And some brisket came falling out. It says the guy bent over and had to get his breath and looked up and he says, hey man, you just saved my life. And this linebacker said, my mama would be so proud. And then the interview said, well, what happened next? He says, well, we, we had our picture made. That's the picture they had made about seven, eight minutes after the guy's life was saved. And then he said, what, 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 did, what did he do next? He says, he went back to the table and finished his brisket sandwich. And uh, then the guy said, the story, of this line, the story here is, do not get between a man and his brisket sandwich. Well, I, th- I thought, you know, you're, you're 27, 28. You're trained, you've trained for the Ironman Triathlon in Honolulu. Ironman is a race of 2.4-mile uh, swim, 112 miles on the bike, and a 26.2-mile run. It is not for the faint of heart. You've got to be a greatly trained athlete to do it. And you're, you're flying out to go to Hawaii and you're eating a brief biscuit uh, 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 and you, you choke to death on your sandwich. We're not promised tomorrow. And we'll be presumptuous about the kindness of God. The second reason he fell into disrepute and sin is, he quite frankly, he forgot the strong principle of second Corinthians, 2 Chronicles, excuse me, 16 verse 9, that says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro to strengthen those whose hearts are committed to the Lord. Now, we deal with God. Every day God walks among us. God walks among us right now by his Holy Spirit to strengthen and bless and energize. God, make my heart for you. And the last thing is Asa blew it as a king because he didn't heed the word of God. So later in life, Asa makes an ungodly treaty with a foreign power. He doesn't seek God. And so a prophet comes back on the scene. Again, prophets speak the word of God. And he comes up to Asa and he says, he says Asa, um, I've got a word from the Lord for you. It says, were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. But you have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Here's, here's, King, here's Asa. So here's my question. How did he respond? A. May God have mercy upon me. The younger Asa so would have. B, can he get a second opinion? Or C, in a rage, arrest a prophet, throw him in prison, torture him, and inflict cruelties upon anyone who agreed with him. The answer is C. C. So he, he abandoned the authority of God's revelation in his life. And he crashed. As you read the rest of the narrative, God, in his tender mercy and kindness, tries to get Asa's attention the way I read it. It says in his 39th year, two and a half years later, Asa was diseased in his feet. And his disease became severe, yet even in his distress he did not seek the Lord, but only sought the help that came from physicians. God says, Asa, I'm trying to get your attention here. Asa turned a deaf ear to God. Listen, I want you to finish well. For those of us who are older, (laughs) uh, stay strong. Those of you who are younger, go strong. Because the eyes of the Lord run to and fro here today to make himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are for him. I want that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the life of so many of these people in the scripture that are so instructive to us. And I pray would be like the good King Asa that we would have continuous reformation of character because you're good and glorious and all-powerful. I-, I pray that we would understand that you strengthen the hearts of those who are yours. I pray that we would realize that, that the ultimate issue is the, the living God and the authority of the living God in our lives. God, have mercy on us. May, may we av- avoid the creeping success syndrome that deadens us to our needs. May we avoid the prosperity and the peace that deadens us to crying out, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. May we be people who gladly receive your revelation and act upon it. So God, work in us. Help us to love people made in the image of God, all people. Help us to be men and women who... In the spirit of the living Christ, live out our days. In Jesus' name, amen.